Amen. As I said, it's a, it's a joy to be here today. We're continuing in, on in our series in Luke. Um, so if you are new or visiting with us, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. I think we've been there for almost two years now in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and in the past few weeks in particular, uh, we've seen the Last Supper take place. So we've seen um, Jesus breaking bread and wine uh, with his disciples and foreshadowing his coming death. Uh, we've seen the, the disciples together arguing about who amongst them is the greatest. Right after this, uh, the Last Supper, they decided to have an argument about who is the greatest and who should be seated at Jesus' right hand. And then just last week, Brendan's taken us through and we've seen Jesus praying at the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood as he prepares to face the coming wrath of God on the cross. And then after that, being betrayed by Judas and handed over to the authorities. So being that that's where we're up to, I can feel a little odd this morning when we take a look at this text. So as we've watched Jesus head into Jerusalem and through the events leading to this crescendo in the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection, it does feel a bit odd now that we have a section focused in on Peter. Peter, the disciple with a decidedly mixed track record in following Jesus, from the highs of being called out of the anonymity of being a fisherman into following his Lord and Saviour, um, the highs of being the first disciple to correctly identify that Jesus is in fact the Christ. And the highs of following his Lord and Saviour in walking out on the Sea of Galilee in faith, walking out to his Lord and Saviour, Jesus. Uh, but then there have been the lows. The lows of rebuking Jesus when he told him that he in fact needed to die. The lows of arguing about who should be the greatest disciple and putting forward his case for himself as the greatest disciple. And the lows of in that moment on the Sea of Galilee, letting his eyes slip from his Saviour's gaze and slipping into the water below, needing to be rescued. Indeed, Peter is the disciple that was most often spoken to by Jesus. He's also the one who has the most recorded words of the disciples. Uh, But he is also the one who is most frequently rebuked and corrected by our Lord Jesus. And this morning's passage represents the darkest depths of Peter's walk with Jesus, this great apostle who church history tells us went on to be crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy of dying in the same way as his Lord and Master had. So if you have your Bibles there, please turn with us to Luke chapter 22. We'll be reading verses 54 to 62. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately... While he was still speaking, 
the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, your word which reveals your very heart to us. Lord, this morning as we consider your words to us through Luke, would you prepare our minds to understand, prepare our hearts to treasure, and our hands to act in response to what you will teach us. Lord, would you be active by your spirit amongst us that we may be changed more and more into the likeness of your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. It might not be immediately obvious from looking at me, but I am in fact a huge fan of Star Wars movies. It's a particular point of pride with me that I've convinced my lovely wife, Zara, to watch the, the most recent trilogy that's been released with me on multiple occasions. We've watched through that series of movies. Uh, my plan is to work back over the older series, the older trilogies, as we uh, continue on our lives together. I, mean, you know, I think it's really important to set goals for marriage, so we've got that one in there early, which is good. Um, also, if you haven't seen these movies, just a, a heads up, a spoiler alert, there's going to be some spoilers in there, so apologies. Now, towards the end of the first film in this new trilogy, The Force Awakens, uh, we are reintroduced to a familiar face from the Star Wars universe. Uh, the lead character, Rey, has been successful in her search to find the Jedi Master, Luke Skywalker, who has been missing in action for many years. Uh, the danger posed to Ray and her rebellion colleagues by the sinister First Order leads them to the realization that they need the help of a true Jedi, uh, even one who has been missing in action for so many years. And the next movie in the series, The Last Jedi, shows Ray in her attempts to convince Skywalker to rejoin the rebellion's cause. As her hopes of convincing him fade, she leaves Skywalker alone on his little hideaway planet and returns to the battle. And in this moment, we're left longing for the redemption of this much-loved character. We long for his return to his former glory, to his heroic acts which are so familiar to us and which we love so much. And as the last remnants of the rebellion wall themselves off in an abandoned mine, merely delaying their inevitable destruction we see the silhouette of a familiar figure with his distinguished green lightsaber drawing it out, ready to save the day. And this morning's text leaves us with this same longing for Peter, for his redemption and for his restoration to Jesus' side and his reconciliation to his Lord and Master. And though Peter's redemption may not be immediately obvious from this text, I want to share with you how our Lord Jesus, in his kindness, redeems Peter from the depth of despair. And from this, we should also see how Jesus wants us to follow him. Peter's experience informs how we should seek to follow Jesus. The key question that I want us to answer from the text this morning is how can we follow Jesus in a world that wants us to deny him? How can we follow Jesus in a world that wants us to deny him? And our answer to this question from the text is threefold, and these will form the basis of the points that we cover off this morning in the text. Point number one, 
Because Jesus is faithful, we follow him in humility. Point number two, because Jesus is faithful, we follow him in confidence. And point number three, because Jesus is faithful, we follow him in awe. So point number one, because Jesus is faithful, we follow him in humility. Let's read from verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Now it's important to remember that just prior to the text that we've read this morning, last week, that Brendan ran us through, the disciples were together with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Initially, as Jesus prayed for the cup to be taken from him, and then as Judas betrayed him and identified him in front of the crowd. However, we see here in verse 54 that Peter is now alone. He's following alone those who have taken Jesus away. And to understand why Peter is alone and has followed Jesus' captors into what is a dangerous situation for him, um, we need to look back at Jesus' words to Peter during the Last Supper. Here... Jesus, addressing Peter by his nickname, said this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So here we've seen Jesus' prediction of what would take place with Peter in the text this morning. Peter's promise to follow Jesus even into death is met with a statement underlying his inevitable failing. And Peter's failing won't be a mere one-off offence. Indeed, it will be a repeated pattern in his denial of knowing who Jesus is. And notice in Peter's chest-beating promise that he will follow Jesus both into prison and into death, it's his pride that has caused him to follow Jesus this far. He has taken it upon his own strength to follow Jesus, and more than that, he has made a promise in front of the other disciples, in effect, binding himself to continue on into this danger in order to preserve his pride. And Peter should have remembered the, prom- the promise from Proverbs sixteen eighteen that pride goes before the fall. You may remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had rebuked his closest disciples, including Peter, saying, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This temptation may well have been the attempt to follow Jesus under his own strength, to prove his dedication to Jesus, maybe even to try and cement his spot as the greatest disciple, as they'd argued about at the Last Supper. And it can be easy to stand back and criticize Peter for his pride, but we should also note that he was genuinely brave, though a little misguided. When confronted by the crowd after Jesus' betrayal of Jesus, after Judas' betrayal of Jesus, only Peter drew a sword to come to Jesus' defense. And this was no mere show of force. You'll remember he actually cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. 
And for all we know, Peter may have fought on further had it not been for the commanding voice of Jesus saying, no more of this. In Peter's mind, he had been serving the Lord by defending him. And so following Jesus' rebuke and him being shackled and taken away, Peter followed on at a distance, but on toward temptation. We've all had moments of pride like this. When our self-assurance overtakes whatever wisdom would have better served us in that moment. Um, I can remember a number of years ago now as I was finishing up at university. um, I went on a short-term mission trip with our church at the time. Uh, We headed to this small town in western New South Wales called Hilston. Really beautiful place. Uh, It's about 700 kilometers west of Sydney. So it's far enough along that you, uh, you notice the kind of the dirt changing color as you drive past going, getting redder and redder until you feel like you're fully in the outback. And at the time, I drove a 1990 Toyota Camry. It's a wonderfully reliable car. Um, it was, you know, had ample boot space and it was really easy to pick out of a crowd because it had this uniquely beautiful, like, rust gold color, I think is how I called it. Um, but along with that, uh, this car also had some other quirks, one of which was a non-working fuel gauge. Now, you're probably wondering how I managed to track when I needed to refuel. I'm really glad you've asked. Every time I refueled the car, I would reach in and reset the trip meter button. So I'd have to kind of remember to do that. If I missed that, it was going to be a problem going forward. Um, And on this particular trip, uh, we pulled into the place we were staying overnight. I knew I could get about 450 kilometers out of the tank. And when we got there, I just tipped over 500. I was thinking to myself, you know, oh, it's kind of country roads, but they're nice and flat. You know, we've been going really straight. I've got all these justifications in my mind. You know, I'm thinking, I know my car. You know, I know the sounds that it makes when it needs more fuel. Um, so we pulled in to stay overnight. Um, and then getting up the next morning, we had about a 10-kilometer trip to make into the town from where we were. And I um, started off in the car with the team uh, who had joined me in there in the car. And as you can guess, about five kilometers into that trip, I felt the engine stutter once and then again. And then I rolled off to the side of the road. My pride had got the better of me. Eventually, a kind passerby stopped and gave us enough fuel from a jerry can that we could get into town. Gotta love that country hospitality. And as Christians, we know the danger of pride. But how can we instead follow Jesus in humility when the world around us desires and even rewards pride? We know from scripture that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in his book, Humility, C.J. Mahaney helpfully defines humility as follows. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So as you can see from that definition, there are two realities that are at play here. On the one hand, we have God's holiness. In other words, his set-apartness, his difference from us. And on the other hand, we have our own sinfulness. And if we lose sight of either of these truths... We either land in pride or a false humility that doesn't recognize God's holiness, instead focusing only on our own sinfulness. Church, we need to remember that God's holiness and our own sinfulness are what help us to see what humility is. 
Because when we forget either of these, we fall into the same trap that Peter did. And in our culture that celebrates pride, we need to be on guard against pride creeping into our lives. And I can see that often from the way that we live in the rhythms of life that we have, the form that this often takes is self-sufficiency. We're a church of very capable people. We can get stuff done and we do get stuff done. The danger is when we shift from getting it done by God's grace and giving him the glory to switching to getting by under our own steam. If you're anything like me, you can miss that switch taking place over time. You look back and see that a trust in the Lord for his grace has transitioned into getting through by the sheer force of will and by self-driven effort. We need to have the courage to speak into one another's lives in this. I'm not suggesting you walk up at the next GC meeting and say, mate, I think your pride's showing. Because that in itself lacks a great deal of humility. (laughs) Not least for the fact that you may be wrong. But get to know members of your group so that when they see that slide start, you can come alongside them and say, I've noticed you're going through a really difficult season. How are you doing in that? And then from a place of love, you can gently draw them back to God's grace and to the joy that it is to live in the knowledge of that grace. Would we be a church that shows that because Jesus is faithful, we follow him in humility? And would we not only follow him in humility, but also because Jesus is faithful, point number two, we follow him in confidence. As Peter continued on into the high priest's house, we see him drawn in with others that were there as part of the group. We'll read from verse 56. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him, said, You also were one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now it's clear from this text that fear has settled on Peter. From that brave, sword-wielding foot soldier standing between Jesus and those who had come to arrest him, we now see Peter alone, away from his Lord and separated from the other disciples who have scattered, standing by a fire as he awaits the fate of the Lord Jesus. In Matthew's account, it tells us that Peter had come to see the end. And here is where we see Peter's fall from grace begin to gather pace. Mere hours ago, he was swinging a sword in defense of his master. But now the words of a lowly servant girl have brought him undone. Drawing in close by the fire, she's able to identify him and recognize him. And then she makes her accusation. This man also was with him. And his denial is immediate. Woman, I do not know him. But now Peter is stuck. There's nowhere for him to go. So when questioned again, you also are one of them. He again denies it. 
And finally, an hour later, another steps forward with the final accusation. Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Whether by his appearance or his language or his accent, Peter has inadvertently portrayed his full identity to those around him. And driven by fear, he can do nothing but again vehemently deny the truth. Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Before he could even get the full sentence out, the rooster crowed. Our hearts should break as we read this. Jesus' disciple, his friend, and his confidant always listed first among the lists of disciples, openly denying knowing his master for fear of retribution. Our hearts should break, but it should also hold up a mirror for us to see our own denials of Jesus. So we deny Jesus all the time, don't we? Maybe not as Peter did, but we deny him when we think of Jesus merely as an example of godly living rather than our Lord and Savior. We deny him. When we believe that our obedience earns us anything from God, we deny him. When we believe the accusations and the condemning lies of Satan, we deny him. When we live with a critical spirit towards others and remember their sins against them, we deny Jesus. When we wallow in self-pity and in shame, we deny Jesus. When we seek to live on our own strength rather than by God's grace, we deny Jesus. If you followed the news at all recently, you probably saw the story of Andrew Thorburn. He was appointed as president of the AFL club Essendon for a grand total of about 24 hours before resigning. Why did he resign after such a short tenure? Well, Andrew Thorburn is a Christian. He's also the chairman of a group of Anglican churches called City on a Hill. Their theology is not dissimilar to our own, nor to the vast bulk of historical Christian churches. However, the media uncovered sermon recordings that, while including some poorly chosen analogies, largely outlined Christian views on the topic of abortions and same-sex marriage. And though the sermons predated his affiliation with the group, the link was enough for those opposing his appointment to force his hand into resignation. And following this resignation, it was noted by one of the groups that had been calling for it, a group called the Purple Bombers, that they did not expect him to resign from Essendon. In fact, they would have been quite happy if he had been the president of the club, a club that he'd loved since boyhood. He'd forever been a fan of this club. But instead, this group figured he would resign from City on a Hill through fear of losing this dream job for him. They thought they could force him into denying Jesus. Now, I recognize there are some complexities with this example, but the main point to us should be clear. Our culture will present us with many and increasing opportunities to deny Jesus. And we need to remember Jesus' faithfulness to us and to follow him with confidence. Alastair Begg captures this difficulty really well when he says this. Christians are increasingly going to be seen as different and not in a good way. We are increasingly going to have to choose between obedience and comfort. 
the next decades will not bring apathy to the gospel, but antagonism. And that's okay. After all, that has been the reality for most of God's people through most of history. So how then can we follow Jesus in confidence? Well, one of the great joys of reading the New Testament is that we get to see the trajectory of some of the characters that we meet in the gospel. And Peter is one example of this. Despite his denial of Jesus, Peter goes on to be used greatly by God. Writing from Rome, 1 Peter is a letter that's written to churches who are suffering a great persecution. And to these churches, Peter writes, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. To follow Jesus in confidence, we need to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that we have. That night, as he sat by the fire, Peter wasn't prepared. He'd stumbled to the high priest's house, fearing what was to come. Church, we need to be prepared to give an answer to those who ask us about the hope that we have in Christ. And I can think of so many times when I've stopped short of sharing the truth of Jesus with those around me. Whether I sidestepped a difficult question or simply let an opportunity slip by so that I could remain comfortable and not have to deal with any tricky questions or awkwardness or resentment. We need to be prepared. We need to pray faithfully. We need to know the word of God and we need to have confidence that he will act in, in and through us by his grace and for his glory. Now, this likely doesn't mean standing on a street corner and shouting the gospel at passers-by. Note what Peter has said about the manner of our approach. Do it with gentleness and respect. And the next verse goes on to say, having a good conscience. Even thinking on the Andrew Thorburn example, so much of the Christian response to these events lacked the gentleness and respect to which we are called. One of the best ways to grow in confidence of how we follow Jesus is to simply get around those who do it well. Those who are able to speak so winsomely of the gospel that all you want to do is lean in and listen closely as they speak of the gospel. Maybe even as I'm speaking, someone is coming to mind who does this. And can I encourage you that if that person is here after the service, go and have a chat with them. Set a time to sit down and pick their brain on how they prepare to give a defense for the hope that they profess. Maybe even buy them a coffee as a thank you. Would we be a church who, because Jesus is faithful, we follow him in confidence? And having that confidence, would we also be a church who, and this is point number three, because Jesus is faithful, we follow him in awe? Awe can be tough to define. It could be because we overuse the word awesome. But I think we know it when we see it. Wednesday mornings are really special in our household, not because we make some special breakfast or have any particular tradition. No, Wednesday is garbage day. <laughs> and for our almost three-year-old Will, that is the best day of the week. 
as he hears that familiar rumble of the truck approaching, he stops whatever it is that he's doing and finds the nearest window to stand and stare at this truck with awe as it empties the contents of our bins into the back of the truck. We usually know it's happening because in his excitement he starts shouting, rubbish, bin, truck. In fact, this week he even interrupted his big brother and sister's breakfast, grabbing them by the hand and demanding that they come to the window and see with him what the garbage truck was doing. Such was his awe, he wanted nothing more than to share it with those around him. Before Peter could finish denying Jesus a third time, the rooster had crowed. Can you remember a moment where your heart truly sunk? One of those moments where you think, I might never recover from this. For Peter, this is one such moment. Let's read from verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. In that moment, as Peter's words tumbled out, Jesus looked directly at him. It's likely that this was the moment that Jesus was being led from his holding cell into the trial where he would ultimately be convicted and sentenced to execution by crucifixion. Jesus looks upon Peter in the moment of his denial as he is being led away to his death. Interestingly, each of the four Gospels records Peter's denial of Jesus, but only Luke includes this profound detail that in that moment Jesus looked straight at him. And how this look must have grieved Peter. In that moment he senses his own sinfulness He feels the weight of his repeated actions with his increasing intensity in each of the denials that he'd given. And we know how it grieved him because his reaction is recorded for us. He went out and wept bitterly. It begs the question, what then was this look that Jesus gave to Peter? Did Jesus look at Peter with anger as he denied him in the moment of his greatest need? No, Jesus had foretold Peter's denial, and though it hurt him, it was no surprise to Jesus. Did Jesus look at Peter to say, how could you, when I needed you the most, you betrayed me? No, Jesus didn't come to burden us with more guilt. He came to take it away. I suspect the look that Jesus gave Peter in that moment was one of pure and holy love. Jesus knew why he had come. He knew that he had to die for sinners like Peter and for sinners like you and I. Why then did Peter turn away and weep bitterly if Jesus looked at him in love? He did it for the same reason that you and I can't stand to be in God's presence when we sin. In the depths of our failure, of our doubt, of our inadequacy, we want to run from God, not gaze upon him. Like Isaiah in the throne room before God, we feel as though we are unclean and unworthy. 
Peter's greatest mistake that night wasn't that he denied Jesus. It was that in his denial, he turned away from Jesus and wept. He wept for his own desire to be self-sufficient. He wept to wallow in his own sin. We have a Lord Jesus who tells us in the depth of our sin, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He knows our sin. He knows the deepest and darkest secrets of our hearts. Yet he went to the cross in our place as a substitute that on that final day, as we walk before the judgment throne of God, we can point not to ourselves, but instead to our risen Lord Jesus, the one who bears our burdens. We should look in awe to a God who does this for us who willingly sacrificed his only son to make us right with him. And if you're here this morning and you know this God, let this be a reminder to return our gaze to him and what he has done for us. And if you're here this morning and you don't yet know him, we're so glad that you're here. We want you to see this God who has done this for us and who has done this for you. And not only that, he did it for Peter too. I love John's reminder this morning that we should feel individually the love of God for us, not just for the church as a whole. And this is a picture of that. Having denied the Lord three times prior to his death, Peter encounters Jesus again following his resurrection. And it's recorded for us in John chapter 21, starting in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus, in his kindness, Having been denied by Peter three times here, after his resurrection, gives Peter three chances to profess his love for Jesus, which he does. What a wonderful picture of the restoration that Peter was offered by the Lord Jesus. A picture of the same restoration that we are offered by the Lord Jesus. Would we be reminded of Jesus' faithfulness and follow him in awe? So in closing today, I want to return to the question that we opened with. How can we follow Jesus in a world that wants us to deny him? Firstly, we need to humble ourselves before our faithful Lord and follow him in humility. We need to follow him in confidence, as Peter wrote to the churches, always being ready to give a defense for the hope that we have in Jesus. And finally, we need to follow him in reverent awe in our darkest moments, being reminded from the words that we sung earlier, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, 
and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that on the night when you were denied and when you were betrayed, you carried on willingly to the cross to die in our place for our sins that we may be reconciled to you. Lord, help us in those moments when we are tempted to self-sufficiency, when we are cowering in fear, and when we are wallowing in our sin. Would you be near to us? Would you, by the work of your Spirit, turn our eyes to you in reverent awe? We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.